right, we left off last week in Psalms, and I'm just going to kind of cut it right down the middle. So um, we started verse 4, and I think I talked about it a little bit, but let's just pick it up. And we're going to begin by reading Psalm 23. You guys want to join me? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Oh, I got caught. You and I was trying to do it by memory. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So again, just by way of catch up, Psalm 23 is, is kind of the pinnacle of this idea. And the Bible is full of um, types of relationships that God uses to describe the relationship that he wants with you and I. And again, as you know, the very essence of Christianity is knowing Jesus and Jesus knowing us. Now, the difference between it, and sometimes the, the, the lines run very parallel, but there's a huge difference between religion and true relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I, I don't fancy myself a religious person, but sometimes use the term religion because it's a term that the world understands. But when, if we're, if we're talking about, if we're being honest, you know, I love it when somebody says to me, I hate organized religion. Because then I get to say to them, so do I, man. You know, and they know I'm a pastor and they think what I do is organized religion, but it's, it's, it's far from organized religion, you know, in the context that they're trying to use it. And, um, you know, when they say things like religion is, is, is responsible for every war and atrocity and terrible thing on human history, and to, the, to some degree, that's, that's partially true. But again, we have to understand that, that none of that stuff that's done in the name of religion is done in the name of Christ, and it has nothing to do with Christ. You know, we, were, uh, we had a Christian school at Joshua Springs, and, and we were big sports programs. And there was probably about 75 small Christian schools in the greater um, um, Southern California area that, were, that we played um, in, in CIF, California Interscholastic Federation. We were a member of CIF, small schools division. And so if you had, like, less than 550 students in your school, you played in this particular division. And so we played basketball, football, baseball, and golf. Um, women's girls volleyball, um, girls softball, and girls basketball, and, and we competed with all these these schools around Southern California that were in our division. And um, some of the Christian schools, their names were the Crusaders. And you know, when you think of the Crusaders, those guys, they had crosses on their on their shields, and they did everything in the name of Christ. But the Crusaders murdered you if you didn't convert to Christianity. And and if you really study the history of the Crusaders, even though it was done in the name of Christ, it had nothing to do with the heart of God. It wasn't the will of God. It wasn't Christian. It wasn't. And not and I don't, I'm not trying to, to stereotype each individual person that was a part of the Crusaders. That's a different different argument. But those things that um, the world sees as religion, they have nothing to do with God, right? And then every every pretty guy, pretty girl news channel in the world, whenever they want to find a, a Christian and show the world what a Christian is, they go down and they find Westboro Baptist or some crazy, you know, green-haired Mohawk dude on the corner yelling at people they're going to go to hell if they don't receive Jesus and they want to interview them or 
some snake charmer church or something. And, you know, and, and it's all lumped in to the idea of religion and, and, and God, but really it has nothing to do with Christ. It's not the will of God, but God has always had a remnant. So again, we're, we, we're, we don't fancy ourselves, or I don't fancy myself religious, although again, again, those terms get, get crossed at times, but um, it's relationship. And, and it's a huge difference because really what you study is how do you get to heaven? You know, and, and what religion does is religion's man attempt is man's attempt to reach up to God and do things to please God. And, and, and you know, my heart breaks for some religious folks because some religious folks that I know, they, they would do anything to please God. And their heart just wants to do right by God. And, and they're always broken. They're always defeated. They're always struggling because their system, the religious system that they abide in, um, never allows them to succeed and always um, makes them live in a place where God is constantly disappointed with their behavior. And they're never good enough, never good enough, never good enough, never good enough. And, and so they struggle. And my heart breaks for them because so many of these folks are sincere and, and they just really want to do what, what, whatever God wants them to do, they'll do it. But they just can't figure out how to do it. You know, it's like we used to tease, right? Because it's not so much anymore. And actually, I think they changed their policy. And lots of things are changing in 2022. But for so many years, the Jehovah Witnesses, on a Saturday morning, you couldn't hardly drive through a neighborhood where there wasn't all these Jehovah Witnesses out going, knocking door to door on everybody's door. And I'm going, man, well... I wish I, I could if I can get half my people out of bed on Saturday morning, let alone get them up every Saturday to knock on doors and share their faith. And, you know, they're doing something right over there, you know. And I just wish I could get my people to go evangelize like they do. But the truth is that they're doing it because they feel like they're going to go to hell if they don't. Because God's going to be mad at them if they don't. Because God's displeased with them if they don't. And, and this is a true story. I've been at the, de- at, the beth- at the bedside of a Jehovah Witness who was dying. It was a hospital call, a pastoral hospital call. I was with Pastor Gerald, and um, there was no peace. And, and this person, it, was, it made an impression on my heart so hard because they, they just didn't, they had no peace because they didn't know if they had done enough to get to heaven. Had they knocked on enough doors? Had they passed out enough tracks? Had they done enough religious duty? And there was no peace Um, at the point of death because there was no assurance of salvation because their salvation was based on their works and not on what? Relationship. And then I've been at the death, at the bedside of many, many Christians at the time of death. I watched Lydia's mom who died from pancreatic cancer so peacefully and with, with joy go into the arms of Jesus. We were standing, all of us, the family, the way God, just in the grace of God, he, we, we all were in the room at the moment that she went to see Jesus when she died. She had been in a coma for about 24 hours, and um, she was starting to, to show signs of that this was the last moment, and Gerald called us all in, and so she had four, four kids, Lydia, and three brothers, and, and the wives and husbands that were there, and we were all gathered in Gerald, and we were all around her bed, and she... You know, she, she had been in a coma. And, you know, one of the things you can't do with a corpse is, is the, the mortician can't put a smile on a corpse. It's impossible. It just physically doesn't work. And, and she had been in a coma, and she, she sat up in the bed just, just a little bit, and, and she got like a smile on her face, and a tear started rolling down her eye, and she laid back down and was gone. <laughs> it was just like we saw her see Jesus. The tear was for her kids. And the smile was because she saw Jesus, you know, and, and so many times, just, just the peace of 
Christians who die so well because when you, when you know that you know that you know you're saved and it's not based on what you do, it's based on what he's done. It's based on relationship. And so God's plan for your life, God's plan for my life is intimacy. The very, the very reason why God created you was for intimacy. God puts relationship before duty. You know, King David said, Lord, what, what do you desire from me? If you desire um, sacrifice and duty and religious um, 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 accomplishments, I will do them. And God said, I don't want any of that stuff. God said, I want a broken and a contrite heart before me. I want relationship. I want intimacy. God created you for his good pleasure. Why, why did God, why is there free will? So that, so that God could have what he desired in, in, in to love. And without free will, there's no love. And, and what's, what's really cool is that, that even this whole experiment of coming here and deciding whether you're going to follow God or not, and, you know, because I was, this is so out of left field, I better stop. When you get to heaven, there's no capacity for sin. So does that take away our free will? The beauty in it all is that even in, in, in all of this, we're going to maintain our free will throughout all of eternity. And that's God's desire because that's the nature of God is to give us free will and we just won't have a desire for sin. There, and Satan won't be there. There'll be no temptation. We'll be perfect as God designed us and created us. And, and it's the very nature of God. That's the reason why there's hell because it would be against God's nature to, to, to force somebody against their own will. And he's given us free will. So anyways, this had nothing to do with free will. Um, what it had to do with and really what I'm trying to get at is the concept that God's desire for you is relationship and intimacy. God, so many times, the entire Bible is just full of, of analogy after analogy. He talks about a father and a son, and he's described in the relationship that a father and a son has and how that describes what God desires for each one of us. God uses many times the relationship between a husband and a wife and how their, 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 their relationship is a picture of relationship with God and those things, how the, even the relationship between a husband and wife that's designed to move them towards God. And, and so, and then this one is the most obvious that we see is this relationship between a shepherd and a sheep. King David uses it in the most famous chapter in all the Bible, most, one of the most well-known chapters in all the Bible, Psalm 23. Jesus himself says he is the good shepherd, and he talks about the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep. And again, we're the sheep, and he's the shepherd. And sheep, as we talked about last week, they're, they're a particular farm animal that requires um, meticulous care. And, and we identify with that because in our lives, we, we, re we require the same kind of meticulous care. So we finished verse 3 last week, and we began in verse 4. Now, there, there's, there's a, a shift in, in the narrative that takes place between verse 4 and the first three verses. In the first three ver verses, whenever the, the psalmist here, David, is talking about the Lord, he talks to him and he calls God He. He leads me. He, he makes me. He leads me. He restores me. He leads me. And then, and then he goes through the valley of the shadow of death in verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now look what changes after he's gone through a hard time. He says, for you. Now you is much more personal than me or he. 
Because before he described him as he, 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 now he's saying you, you. And again, there's an intimacy, there's a shift in relationship that's taking place as the shepherd is beginning to appreciate and realize what the, sh- what the, what the sheep is beginning to realize what the shepherd has done for him. And now that we, we get this real deep intimacy. And listen, hardship in your life, God allows it. God allows you to go through things in your life to build character in you. I mean, the Bible goes as far as to say, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Lydia is in 1 Peter this week in women's Bible study. She talked about this last night and the same idea. She was sharing with me. She was all fired up about it. And, and, you know, in her own life, it was revolutionary, revelationary because she knows it. But as you know, that's what you do as a Bible teacher. You read something you read a bunch of times and God jumps something off the page. And, and, and she started just going through all the Bible, right? She said, I, I went, you know, to what Paul said, what Peter said, what Jesus said, what the Old Testament says. And it's so consistent all the way through that God allows and uses trials in your life. And that hardships are, are things that God allows and God uses. And again, that's why we thoroughly reject the prosperity gospel. Because it's just not what you find in Genesis to Revelation. If God's plan is for us to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, then, you know, he failed for all of human history. Because there's not one person recorded in human history that was only happy, healthy, and wealthy. And so we, we, Abraham was very wealthy. People were very happy. People were very healthy. That's not absent in the Bible, but this idea that, you know, wh- where we seek the Lord for how can he bless me? How can he make me happy? What can he do for me? And, and that's really not the concern. But, but God does absolutely. And, and the problem with the prosperity gospel is that when you face a hardship in your life, you're, you're told it's because you have sin or because you don't have enough faith. It's because you don't have enough healing. I had a, a young man that I was good friends with right before Bible college, and he was involved in one of these prosperity churches, and he, he had um, um, a certain skin condition, and his skin would peel, and, 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 you know, you could see it, and it was, and so, and he would take medication for it, and it would keep his thing, and so, you know, I run into him, and he's got this, his whole face, Looks like, he, you know, he's, he's been sunburned for a month and then started to peel and it's red and it's peeling all over the place and skin kind of falling off of his face. And I'm like, what's up, dude? And like his, his church, his, his faith was telling him that he didn't have enough faith. If he just had faith, he could stop taking the medicine and, and God would heal him. And so he stops taking the medicine and he's not received his healing and he's walking around with half his face peeling off. You know, I've seen people with the same idea, and they're walking around, and, and, and they're, they're supposed to wear glasses, but if they have enough faith, God will heal their eyes, and they're like bumping into things. God's going to heal me. God, you know, like, he hasn't done it yet, but, you know, well, put your glasses on until God does it, you know. Not to say God won't heal you. God will heal you, and having faith is a good thing. But, again, my point is that, 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 that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, look at the end of verse... Um, and tell me what is the conclusion of, or I'm sorry, the end of verse 4. Why, why does he fear no evil? What is the factor in the psalm that prevents him from fearing evil? That he says, I'm not going to fear evil because of this reason. What is it? Because what? Because of God's what? Presence. Right? And that's, that's, that's really the essence of of, again, of Christianity, of life, of ministry, is the presence of God being with us. And that's something that we desire. You know, Moses was capitalized on this idea. And, and really, if you think about it, 
God called Moses to some pretty extreme things that even Moses himself was very reluctant to do. I mean, Moses told God in the beginning, no, I don't speak well. Let Aaron do it. I'm not going. And then as, as time progressed and Moses' faith grew and more and more times he watched the ten plagues, he seen God. But even after that, then 40 years of, of wandering through the wilderness with complaining, grumbling people that just seemed to never quite get it. And then God tells Moses in, in Exodus chapter 33 that, you know, I want you to get up and go and, and do this next thing. And Moses is like, Lord, I'll do anything for you. I'll go. I'll do it. I'm learning my lesson. It's time. Let's do it. He said, Lord, but I'm not going unless you go with me. And, and the Lord said, Moses, I'll go with you. My presence will go with you. Should I read it to you? Or you guys just believe me? Exodus 33, verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said to me, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider this nation is your people. And the Lord said to him, Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, all right, Lord, but if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. And so Moses is like, I don't care what's happening. I don't care where we are. He's like, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with me, I'm not going. I don't want to go. Don't bring me without your presence. But wherever your presence is, I will be. You know, the, the most easy to articulate story in the Bible is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, right? In the area of trials. Because the whole story is so phenomenal. First of all, the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They looked at the king of the world at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we ain't bowing down. Such faith. Our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, and that's not even a lack of faith. That's just reality. But even if he doesn't, we're, we're, we're not going to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar was so angry that he ordered the fires be turned up seven times the normal heat. The Bible says that the soldiers that were carrying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego next to this furnace to throw them through the doors... The flames came out and consumed them. And the whole story is that God did not keep them from the fire, but that God did what? He went into the fire with them. And that's what happens here in, in Psalm 23. That's what God does so many times in our life. He doesn't keep you from the fire. He goes into the fire with you. You know the rest of the story, Shadmach, Meshach, and Amenigo? So cool. And again, it's kind of hard in my mind's eye. I've seen some pictures of it to kind of help me figure it out. And I don't know, but I'm trying to figure out what did it look like? It's a, it's a real story, right? It's a furnace. Somehow they built something that you could throw people in. And, and Nebuchadnezzar from a balcony perch must have been open on the top. And I don't know if they built it with brick. And I don't know what they did. Some furnace. But Nebuchadnezzar can look in 